Welcome to The Pestle, reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by voiceover artists, we make your life sound more exciting than it is. Now let's dim the lights and start the show. Welcome everybody to The Pestle. Uh, Today's show is brought to you by Axe Global. Step ahead of other investors, take your cut with Axe Global. Welcome everyone to The Pestle. I am Wes. And I am Todd. And we're filmmakers. We like to discuss and analyze film from that perspective as people who know about writing and directing and some cinematography and some acting and some of this and some of that. Uh, It's fun to use all of that and to see how much further we have to go when we watch other uh, great artists at work. Um, It's always it's always fun, even if, you know, the movie doesn't end up being our favorite. Uh, there's just so much expertise and there's so much to learn from every every project. Yeah. And it's a it's a process, man. Um, learning it, as a writer, I'm constantly, you know, learning, I think, um, in ways that you don't always anticipate. So my grandmother, of course, passed away uh, this past week, week and a half. And so that's been a that was a strange time. Obviously, it's it hurts. It's painful. So if I if I get scatterbrained over the next few weeks, forgive me. Um, but losing my grandmother was different from losing anyone else. Not just because she's literally in my very first memory, but I have a mother and she lost her mom. And so being there for my mom was really different because I couldn't for the several days, I couldn't really even grieve because you don't want the last thing you want is to suddenly feel like your mom has to take care of you when she's trying to grieve herself. And so it's all about, you know, trying to be strong, hold it together and let her have a moment to fall apart. And that's why I've never really understood when people say you got to be strong for your family. I never, I honestly just never understood. I thought that was kind of a, uh, a red herring to, you know, get away from how you actually want to grieve. And that's like a, uh, but it it is actually a thing as it turns out, Todd, People aren't making I, everything up, I guess. That's um, such a great point. Like, wow, I, I never, I actually never thought of that. You know, yes, your mom lost her mother, which, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, you're, you have to grieve, like it, you're going through a loss, but she arguably is going through a bigger loss, right? This woman has been in her life for her whole life, obviously. Wow. I, Yeah amazing it was it was something i had never considered like i've and it's not my first grandparent i you know when i was younger uh i lost my grandfather whenever on my biological father's side i didn't know that side of my family quite as well i spent some amazing summers with them um but otherwise every single holiday it's this other side of my family my mother's side um and so whenever i lost my you know I forget what you call that paternal grandparents. It wasn't quite as stunning for me because it was only periodic when I saw them in the first place, as opposed to being every single holiday, every single birthday celebration, whatever, like grandma and my grandfather are both there. Uh, And so that was just a a very, yeah, strange realization to be like, Oh, I kind of need to watch. I need to make sure I'm aware and, you know, not falling apart just for all those reasons. Um, and then as you know, you, you move along in the process, uh, you find your space to, to grieve. And, um, yeah, it was a, 
humbling experience, but it was also just one of those things as a, as a writer and as an actor, I try to always be aware of when I'm experiencing something like I was kind of going through some of this, you know, telling my producer some of this when we were catching up uh, a few days ago and then he and I, you know, got into a, a disagreement and I'm very aware physically of what was going on in my body, even as I'm having an argument. It's like my, my breath shortened and, you know, I, you know, little tremble. I was restless. I couldn't sit still. I needed to close my laptop, even though my laptop did nothing to me. <laughs> like I was just, you know, what are all these things that I'm doing, even as I'm doing them, even as I'm frustrated and, and, and wrestling with uh, the conversation at hand, I'm, I was also just hyper aware of everything happening within my body so that uh, as an actor, I can be aware of those things, even as a director. If I want to give an actor like some, some more juice, like, Hey, why, why don't you try this? You know, close your laptop or uh, put away your phone, pull out your phone then put it away again. Like uh, you're just restless energy, right. And give them ideas. Like just being aware and experiencing yourself as you're experiencing life um, is good. It's a useful thing, even as it feels a little perverse, like uh, almost like you're, you're cribbing notes off of tragedy or grief. Yeah, it's like it's yeah. a weird so it's really cool that we're, I don't know, going through uh, Charlie Kaufman today because he is very much that kind of guy. <laughs> like, you, you, it's hard to not watch adaptation, understand him as a screenwriter thinking about screenwriting and then inserting all of that in just layers and layers into the film itself. Him describing the film as he's making the film um, is just really hilarious. Um, but and also just true to form um, for a lot of artists. Like, I, I can only imagine the number of times that you've, thought about making something while going through something just as a, as a coping mechanism or just because you're feeling the inspiration or the energy that you can't dissipate. And it's like just a way to dissipate energy, um, build up and all that. Yeah. And it's weird because every, everything now is just weird for me. Like laughing feels wrong. It's like, Whoa, do you get to laugh? Yeah, of course you get to laugh. Yeah. But how long after? Are you allowed to laugh? Same yeah. day? Next day? In a week? What when's if you it, accident what if something accidentally makes you laugh? Yeah, when's that when day? is it okay, right? What if something accidentally makes you laugh like five minutes later? You know? Yeah. Like do you do you feel guilty? Is it yeah. And then do you feel guilty for feeling guilty? Like as if you expect life to stop going forward like other people's joy shouldn't be there yeah it's <laughs> well yeah it's, it's interesting i mean i have a uh i have a song that's that's about my father dying he's not he hasn't died but what it would be like if he did and in it i talk about how you know i want the world to stop mm. like everything like everything needs to stop because this is very important and you all the entire world needs to know this kind of thing i think that's kind of the feeling of like okay if we it you know i know that that every you know it's supposed to be you have all these 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 steps you go through when you grieve well one of those steps is actual sadness right and i don't it's not you know i probably would feel like it's not fair not fair but it's not okay for other for the world to be happy and moving forward you know while this thing has happened to this person that I love, right? Th like this, nobody knows how important this is except for me. And that's not okay. The world needs to take a, a second. 
And I think maybe that's like the a part of it too. Uh, uh, I mean, it's. I know that that had to be really hard losing your your grandmother, uh, but I'm proud of you for going and being there with and for your family, for your mother. Let's just say for your mother, you know, more more than anybody, and for yourself, right? You know, and uh, it had to be incredibly hard to also put your own feelings and emotions on the back burner, at yeah. least for for a while, you know. Yeah, it was funny. Her. She taught me how to make salsa like, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago. And so I was struggling. You made it for me. Oh, that's right. Sorry. Yeah. I, it's always a shadow. Like no one can ever. She literally gave me all the directions, walked me into her kitchen, showed me how to do it step by step. And I still, you know, you can't reproduce that magic. And so I was struggling for several days. Uh, and then like I got the phone call Wednesday morning and Saturday I decided I'm going to make some salsa and commune with my grandmother. And I was, you know, almost done. I, you know, took a sample bite and I was like, it'd be funny if this is when I decided to have a breakdown and then I just collapsed. <laughs> I was like, Oh, uh, yeah. Oh God. I'm sorry, man. I'm sorry. Um, so what are we doing today? <laughs> yeah, no, we're adapting. That's what we're doing today. Man. Yeah, I, um, I'm. I, I don't want. I don't want to be flippant about it. I, no, I, not at all. You know, like at, at the end of the day, it's it's processing. It's moving on and talking about film. Moving on. I don't know. It's it's me. You know, I think of maybe I could, I could just say say this. Like a lot of times when I watch movies, especially movies that have where where a lot of people die, and then we move to another shot. I always think about like, I always do this. I always do almost every single movie. I mean, any mission impossible, whatever, some dude, random henchman gets cut in half or whatever. How many people will never see that henchman guy again? <laughs> or, or like, it doesn't even matter. You know, somebody like a building falls and like somebody, you know, a group of people are yeah. like, like, but then we shoot, we go cut to another thing because the main character goes to another city or something like that. Yeah. That kind of stuff, that's the stuff that I think about of like, what about that one person and how many lives is that one person, that woman, how many lives is that woman touched? And, and it would be really interesting to see a film where you think it's going one way and something happens to a <laughs> random character that has nothing to do with the story and the story de completely deviates to the repercussions of that for that of the people that knew that person. Like that would That's be awesome. really yeah. unique and interesting. And nobody, I, nobody has done that, that I've seen at least maybe yeah. if there's some film that you've seen, that's done that, let me know. Cause I want to immediately go watch it. But that's the kind of stuff that I think about. And I know someone like your grandmother, obviously she's touched your life and, and changed yeah. your life and, you know, thousands of other people. Yeah, no, that would be funny, yeah. man. It's like you're watching heat and you're watching De Niro and uh, Pacino, you know, tee off on each other and then suddenly you know there's a shootout and you know some random cop gets shot and then you know we're cutting to his family getting the news and we just leave yeah. all of that and it's yeah just the and we, that's the, the, the last we see of de niro yeah. like he's gone you know he's in like the first third of the movie but that's it you catch like new segments about what happened and that's your you know finishing of that whole storyline but the rest is just sitting with the family and like he he loved you know helping people and uh he was a great cop <laughs> and that's just it's... yeah i mean i think like maybe a good version of that would be something like crash mm. or something where 
not and it's not that it's not this that's no. its own thing you know but like i think the closest i've seen is something like a place beyond the pines um okay where oh yeah yeah uh, it, it kind of has that but it, it's all very is connected. that the gosling film uh, yeah this is gosling okay. and yeah. uh brad bradley what's his name cooper yeah that one um okay rocket i don't know the guy that plays rocket yeah, yeah, rocket. <laughs> like, the rockets in that one <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah but <laughs> No, all good, man. Like, yeah, I, I just felt like, you know, it's, it's, I learned a lot of interesting things and I don't know, I try not to hide too much. Um, even though I certainly keep a lot to, you know, to myself, but we're always learning, we're always growing and, and that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. And it's totally okay to be emotional. Um, and I mean, and anybody would, anybody would, um, hopefully but, if you are not an animal and you love your grandparents. <laughs> yeah. Gee. <laughs> Uh, yeah. When my, um, last grandmother passed, I, I was with her and then I left to go back to Austin and I literally pulled into my apartment complex and I got the call. Wow. Yeah. I was like, I was with her in Houston and then I was like, I, you know, I was there for days and I had to go back to work. Yeah. Like I, I, and they, they thought she was coming back. They thought she was going to be all right. And Anyway, um, yeah, yeah, I'm I'm really sorry you had to deal with that. We, you know, took a little bit of time off, um, and you know, we might take some more. Who knows? But, yeah. uh, but it's it is good to be back seeing you and talking to you about films and giving me an excuse to watch films and and talking about this this stuff that we love, man. Nice. And what are yeah. we talking about today, man? Yeah, today we are covering Andy Kaufman's adaptation. Um, so if you haven't seen this film, please pause it this episode and go watch it because we're going to spoil a bunch of stuff. Yeah, we'll look at, we'll touch on some of the cinematography, but we'll also dive into the story and writing, subplots versus settings, as well as Charlie's twin. Um, yeah, and then at the very end, stay tuned, because we'll be listening to a new track from Mad Valley. This one's called Come Back Down. Quite excited about that, sir. <laughs> and other such stuff and things and stuff. In a quick synopsis of the film, a lovelorn screenwriter becomes desperate as he tries and fails to adapt a book into a movie. Directed by Spike Jones, screenplay by Charlie Kaufman, cinematography by Lance Accord. Uh, it's featuring Nicolas Cage as Charlie and Donald Kaufman, Meryl Streep as Susan Orlean, Chris Cooper as LaRoche, Tilda Swinton as Valerie, and Kara Seymour as Amelia. My leg hurts. I wonder if it's cancer. There's a bump. I'm starting to sweat. Stop sweating. I've got to stop sweating. Can she see it dripping down my forehead? Oh, she looked at my hairline. She thinks I'm bald. She's... You think you're great? Oh, wow. Thanks. That's, that's nice to hear. We all just loved the Malkovich script. Thanks. Such thanks. a unique voice. Boy, I'd love to find a, a portal into your brain. <laughs> Trust me, it's no fun. <laughs> So tell me your thoughts on this crazy little project of ours. First, I think it's a great book. LaRoche is a fun character, isn't it? Absolutely. And Orlean makes orchids so fascinating. Plus her, her musings on Florida and orchid poaching, Indians. It's, just, it's great, sprawling New Yorker stuff. And I'd want to remain true to that. You know, I'd, I'd want to let the uh, movie exist rather, rather than be artificially plot-driven. Great. <laughs> I guess I'm not exactly sure what that means. Oh. I'm not sure I know what that means either. Um, you know, I just don't want to 
ruin it by making it a Hollywood thing, you know, like 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 an orchid heist movie or or something, you know, or uh, you know, changing the orchids into poppies and turning it into a movie about drug running, you know. Why, why can't there be a movie simply about, about flowers? I guess we thought that maybe Susan, Orlean, and 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 Laroche could fall in love. Okay. And but I'm saying it, it's like I don't want to cram in sex or uh, guns or car chases. You know, I, I, or characters, you, you know, learning profound life lessons or growing or coming to like each other or overcoming obstacles to succeed in the end. You know, I mean, it's, it's, the, the book isn't like that and, and life isn't like that. You know, it just isn't. And <clears throat> you know, I feel very strongly about this. So Nicolas Cage is so-so. <laughs> He's okay. <laughs> what a... I mean, that that whole monologue is funny, um, and this happens throughout the film where he basically does all the things he's saying. Um, uh, this is a sprawling film, um, so he accomplishes that goal, but it also kind of becomes a, a heist film and a drug-run film, and all those things that he said he didn't want to do becomes, in one way or another, it touches on all of that, uh, which is really, really funny. Yeah, you just watched this for the first time a few weeks ago, um, and now you're revisiting it again. Uh, what was it like sitting down to watch this, uh, 20 year old classic? Uh, I mean, it was, a I, to me, this was, this was art at its finest. It, it was, you know, I've never, you know, I've, I think that, I think that you can look at Nick Cage, uh, on his face and just think, think, oh, you know, like it, his movies are fun. You know, Con Air, it's fun, but it's not really like great acting. But when I watch this film. I'm just absolutely floored by the, I mean, <laughs> just how good he, he is. I mean, this, this type of movie is just perfect for him. I don't think that he plays like stoic stoicism very well. I, if he, if he has to be super serious and by super serious, I don't mean not funny. I just mean like if he has to, has to be very, you know, still, I don't really buy it. This whole um, him playing Charlie Kaufman, him him being you know just he's he's always moving, he's always searching, he's always you know restless. That is so that's very down his his uh, his rabbit hole of of ability, and I think he just destroys this role. It's absolutely perfect. It makes me feel like I'm looking into the mind of an actual distraught writer who's looking desperately for a way to not only not only like make something that nobody's ever made before <laughs> but just make something in general just like period you know just i just want to write a freaking page and what a what a turn that it takes because that's where he starts right it's like i need yes. to make something inspired and brand new that no one's ever done and by the end right he's like just yeah let me make anything <laughs> anything at all that's the whole point and yeah. then and then it's a it's a real you know like turning point for him and i love i love that that scene where he goes to the um he, he goes to the the speech right of the of, what's his McKee? name I forget. yeah yeah and and he <laughs> He asks that question and he just gets, he just gets torn apart and he goes, okay, thank you very much. And he just sits <laughs> down. It's so fantastic because it's fantastic because any other movie or any, like maybe that would have been it. 
and he would have just left, right? But no, he waits. He waits after it's his out of character of him, I think, too, of his mm. character. He like waits out outside for him to uh the speaker to come out. And then he confronts him and says, I can we can we get a drink or like whatever? Can we talk? Can I talk to you? Da, da, da. He goes for more. He was just torn up completely by this guy. And yet he goes back for more. And that's it does so many things for me. It makes me question you know like what am i doing because this guy who's completely he's just he's just a lost cause throw go throws himself head first into the lion's den and goes back to this guy who just destroyed him for guidance how ballsy is that this is a guy who like you know doesn't want to leave his apartment you know he, he can't write a single word on a page he's like you know like he can't kiss a girl like he's just he cannot do anything like that at all that he's supposed to do he's a complete mess and yet here he is in a in a different city um i guess he was in new york at this time in a different city you know this guy he's never met who just tore him apart and he's going back to ask him more questions for more guidance when the guy says the opposite of what he just said in the clip that you said that you played He's like, why are you going to waste my effing time? You know, I've got things to do. Why are you going to waste my time with no plot or anything like that? And it's, it just is mind blowing. And that's just one little moment of this. I mean, the idea of him having a twin brother is just brilliant. A brilliant little, who, who just kind of falls into a success. Right. And he's, he's, you know, very charismatic and he's out there and and kudos to to cage for being able to play both roles so perfectly and his brother comes to new york you know to help him out and he's in the same room with himself playing with himself and and playing one guy who's charismatic and just throwing out ideas all over the place and then also a guy who's very reserved like oh we can't do that because da, 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 and, and it's it's mind-boggling the um the writing in this film to me it's poetic it's artistic uh uh it's such an incredible screenplay it just in general and then to see it come alive um uh what's his name cooper uh oh chris, uh, chris cooper. cooper oh my god i mean i didn't realize it was him for several scenes yeah yeah, yeah <laughs> me either but uh i mean and, and, and they do such a i think that um what's uh directed it spike jones, jones. spike yeah. jones I'm so bad with names. Spike Jones did such an incredible job of making us also to a point. I don't think we, anybody ever, I don't think I ever like actually fell in love with, with him, mm. but I did. I was in some moments endeared by his love for what he did, you know, which I think, I think that, that um, she was too. I think that yeah. Susan, that's kind of like what got her too was just John's, love for what he does and his just all encompassing drive for what he did because she feels the same you know with with her writing and they had this connection and i felt that i felt that at times throughout and then obviously you know he would say something stupid or whatever and i'd be like oh yeah no he's a total freaking loser you know um, and this is ridiculous <laughs> what am i doing but that's a brilliant 
it's it's just it shows the brilliance of spike's directive direction you know i would say and i just absolutely love kaufman and and almost all of his writing i mean eternal sunshine one of our favorites one of my favorites and i think yeah, one of yours absolutely too. you know being john malkovich like it just there's a there's a pretty good list of stuff that's really insightful new intriguing but also just like this is this is just a story where it's life imitating art imitating life imitating art imitating life and how how inceptiony that's gonna that gets uh is the uniqueness of it i would say dude that's so awesome yeah everything about this film like i watched it not in theaters but after it came out on like dvd and it was just one of those i think someone might have recommended it and i was like yeah okay and so i just sitting and watching it with my brother and we're and i haven't seen it since but it is such a strong unique story that I remembered a really good chunk of all this again, 20 years later. And I can still like, Oh yeah. That clip with McKee is like just as fresh, you know, as it was when I watched it the first time and knowing, I think a little about screenwriting watching this was really, really funny to me. I mean, I was in my very early twenties and I was, you know, whatever, 2021 and watching it, I was just cracking up without fully understanding everything that he's wrestling with. And of course now as a screenwriter, like I can really appreciate, you know, a lot of these conversations, but I think what works so well for this is you don't have to be a screenwriter to immediately understand the dynamic that's at play between him and his brother. Whenever you see someone being super artistic and then you hear someone else like just on a whim deciding, you know what? I figured out what I'm going to do. He's like, you're going to have to pay me back. No, no, I am going to pay you back. I'm going to be a screenwriter. And we all kind of instinctively know this is a very hard thing to get into getting into, you know, the film industry at all and making, you know, a break in really, really tough and hearing someone be so flippant about it uh, and make it sound just so simple. Like, uh, yeah, I'm just going to be a famous billionaire. Like, okay, well, good luck, you know, and then start to just kind of go paint by the numbers uh, is just so aggravating to someone who we've already been talking to and listening to how he thinks. And so the setup is really good because we've already spent our, in the opening credits, some time inside his insecurity and his mind. And then we're meeting him for the first time talking with, you know, some agent uh, that has optioned a book to turn into, you know, a screenplay. And now he's pitching himself but he's doing it with integrity and the integrity comes through when he says all the things I hate about Hollywood that immediately his brother says that he likes in the very next scene. Like that's all the things I want to do. And so he does a really good job of walking. Anyone can watch this movie and easily understand the, the conflict that he has. And of course that's really important because he's trying to make a film without conflict. Like that's what he's doing in the, in the story is adapting this book without any real conflict. It's just about flowers. But within the story that we're watching, there's all kinds of conflict. And so we, of course, begin to understand as he walks through this whole process that this is a story that he was getting to as he was trying to wrestle through all these problems. And so, yeah, there is this inception-y kind of thing going on where you're looking into a mirror that is reflecting another mirror on the other side. Uh, and it's just this infinite hallway of views. And it's a little disorienting at times. Uh, and that's what makes it so fun is that he managed to, to thread the needle in a way that it's 
a little disorienting without ever actually fully disorienting you. So even at the end, whenever he's driving off and he's like, I, I know exactly how I'm going to end the book. It's, it's going to end with him knowing how to end the book. <laughs> and then he's going to sit at his typewriter and he's going to say, and then he understood how to end the book. <laughs> so you've got like <laughs> three or four layers of him having this realization um, and looking down on it as he drives off into the, into the sunset. It's just really smart, but it's smart in and of itself, but also because of how well he's able to pull any audience member along for the ride. It would be a lot easier to write this thing if you weren't that concerned with making sure it's accessible to people who don't understand all the things that he's talking about already, but instead walk in completely blind and then get brought up to speed and then get on the inside of all the jokes instead of feeling like the butt because everyone, I mean, half the audience, you know, loves all the things that he hates. Every movie he's talking about that disgusts him are movies that do really well. And guess what? We all watch those movies and we all like those movies. We don't want to feel like he's making fun of us. Instead, you want them to feel like, Yes, we like art and these other things are silly, even though we all secretly, you know, appreciate that. But within the context of the story, being able to get on his side instead of being uh, in opposition of him is really clever. And it's uh, it's very swift. And part of it is done, of course, through his character building of Charlie himself, making him this dumb, not dumb, but uh, insecure, fat, balding guy who uh, who can't kiss the girl like you just make him so sympathetic that, you know, you you're rooting for him to just get out of his own way. Um, even as you're frustrated with him at points like the, like the kiss in the car. Yeah. Uh, man. I mean, it, it like makes you, it, it puts the screenwriter in the forefront of the importance of a film. So many movies, you don't even think about the screenplay. It just is the story. And that's what makes the screenplay great. You know, right. Absolutely. This, this flips that completely. And it, it is the story. The screenplay is the story and you have no idea where it's going because it's being written while you're watching it. So everything that happens is surprising. It is. And then it's such a tricky rope to walk, though, because once you start alerting the audience of the screenwriter, you're basically inviting them to also think about what you're presenting to them. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. if you when you start wrapping things up, it needs to be ahead of the audience. It needs to make sure that as the audience is thinking about what you're telling them and informing them about screenwriting, that you're also not giving them an excuse to judge you and, and eject from the story. Like that's such a tricky, you know, to, to write all of that and balance it and, you know, carry it out. Like, wow. Hence, that's a great point. Hence in the third act, when he and his, uh, uh, Charlie and his brother go to, to Florida, Right he's not actively writing at that point. They're just experiencing life and we're watching them experience the life. So we're not, we're not judging the writing. It's just their, their life experience. And then after that craziness happens, then he finishes the screen. You know what I'm saying? So we experience all of it during, but then when you get to the third act, we're not experiencing the writing. We're experiencing life and real life scenarios and stuff. We're not like flashing to, to, Susan and John and flashing back to Charlie. We're, we're not doing any of that anymore. They're together now. And so there is just life. There is no writing. That's a great point. Choosing when and where to use those voiceovers for his thoughts. It's really delicate because yeah. if you do it at the wrong time, then you are inviting, you know, 
a little bit of picking apart uh, instead of just existing because there's moments when he's not in his head, um, even though he, he he is with all his insecurities, but he's he's finding a way to uh, screw up his life. And those are the moments that he's out of his head. Um, yeah. And yeah, it's a, it's really tangled and it's a lot of finesse going into this. And I, yeah, I, I would never dance on these, uh, on these grounds. Like, I mean, no, it, it just requires top level from yeah. literally everyone uh, from this, you know, I think that, that Kaufman working together with uh spot, uh, Spike Jones, the director. Thank you. Um, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. I had it right. Spike uh, Kaufman working with Spike Jones is just magic. You know, they have to be on the same page throughout every single scene, every shot, every angle, every like point of view, because then it's going to get into the edit and it's not just them. It's also the acting has got to be just on point. But really, if those two guys are, are linked at the hip, you know, mentally, because it's, it's one thing to be a director. It's another thing to be a director for a Charlie Kaufman film, right? You you kind of have to get it well before you make it. Like while you're reading it, you have to be able to see it. I feel like I, I don't feel like something like this could be explained. Uh, like Charlie could sit down with Spike and just be like, okay, this is what I'm thinking. No, I, I think that Spike would need to be able to sit down with Charlie and say, this is what I see when I read your, your screenplay. And, mm. and Charlie would be like, yeah, that's it. They just have to all automatically be on the same plane because how do you explain this and then do do it and then get it into an edit and it works. I I just don't know. I yeah. don't. I I love all the conversation throughout it though because it's a as he's wrestling with it, we're seeing so many things um that he's not addressing uh at least I don't think, but like Susan as a character is really interesting. It feels like He's commenting about writers or at least judging writers in and in by doing so judging himself. It doesn't feel right. like uh, a way to just talk, you know, crap about his peers, but as a way to lift up everyone else by kind of in a soft kind of subtle way put writers down. And by that, I just mean Susan becomes infatuated. It's very much what you were talking about, about LaRoche and being you know, fascinated by his uh, uh, just joy and love and passion for, for orchids um, and, and plants and um, just being a really vivacious person, right? He's just very alive um, and, and into everything that he's doing. And he does not care if you're not into it. He might yell at you, but uh, that's not necessarily just because you're not into it. I don't know. He's just his own mercurial kind of personality. And it's fascinating. And I think what's interesting to me is Susan is fascinated by him because she doesn't have any of that herself. Right. That's her conversation with herself is how much she wish she loved anything as much as this guy loves a flower. And mm. she's hoping to catch some of that. And then when she finally sees the flower, she's like, it's, it's just a flower. Like I, she's disappointed. And of course, he doesn't know what she's on about. He's just you know, like a little let down that she's let down, but she's let down that she didn't experience this thing that he's been experiencing whenever he, he gets these moments. And if the most rare flower in whatever America or the world, whatever, like isn't going to do it for her, then 
none, none of that's going to do it for her. And of course, that's eventually what levels up her relationship with with LaRoche. But it's that emptiness. Like, and I think the commentary to me is that she's writing about other people because she doesn't have anything in herself to write about. Like there's a hollowness there that she's trying to fill up with other people's stories, with other people's uh, lives and passions um, instead of, you know, going out and living her own passion, living her own life. Now, I don't think most writers would, would see the world that way, but I think it's a very interesting take on that character um, and maybe just as a motivation for some writers or writers in general, I don't really care. Um, it's a, it's fun and, and layered uh, in its own way. Yeah. I love that. Cinematography. I just want to dive a little bit in cinematography just so that I, I can look at some of the story and writing. Cause there's more writing stuff that I think is really cool. Cinematography wise, Charlie, it just pops out to me that whenever he's in that seminar and we get that really wide shot of him sitting in the middle, right before he asks this question, it's such a good shot because he pops out of the crowd so strongly. And that's tricky. I think one of the things they're doing is uh, some vignetting with the light that kind of, you know, make sure that the edges of the frame kind of have a natural tint to it. It felt like that was in camera. That didn't feel like a post effect. It felt like the lighting itself was vignetted uh, in the scene. But then everyone around him is in solids. Like a lot of people are wearing black. And if they're not wearing black, they're just wearing a solid. And then he, of course, is in plaid, most brightly lit in the room, but also in plaid. And it's just making a lot of great contrast in order to make him the focal point so that when we cut to that shot, our eye might wander for a half second before we land on him because that's where everything is pointing to. Um, and it's hard to do in a really wide shot like that in a crowd of faces to pick out one single face really well directed and, you know, choreographed with everyone, his whole team. That's, uh, you know, the cinematographer as well as um, your wardrobe and costume department. Like that's very, very finessed uh, moment there. Um, the other little lighting moment I love is uh, whenever he goes into his room, Charlie goes into his room and sees, you know, what his brother left him, the, the, the rules, the screenwriting principles or commandments. And he like starts to read it and then just pulls it down, wads it up, turns around. There's his brother. And his brother says, you shouldn't have done that. <laughs> it's kind of creepy. <laughs> um, and then he laughs. He's like, no, it's fine. Just kidding. And what I love about it is the lighting there is this uplighting. And it's, they're giving them this kind of monster campfire lighting, right? That's just a little scary and horrific because it's not how we're used to seeing lighting. It's fun. It's just a little fun, villainous, you know, visual punch uh, for, the, for the humor of the moment. The other thing I really love, uh, and this is kind of a combination of cinematography and editing, um, and directing, of course, everything is a directing thing as far as I'm concerned, but the reaction shot of when they are at the end of that date with Amelia, Charlie is, um, debating like, you know, internally what's going to happen. And they're just having this great conversation. Um, and he's giving her this beautiful compliment about, I love your music. It's so beautiful. Uh, and she's like, thank you, Charlie. And he's a little moment. And then he goes and starts talking about like, well, I should, I, I, I would hang out, but I, I, I need to go and, and work on my script. It's just not going well right now. Otherwise I would, I would stay out longer. And I love that while we're listening to him talk, we're watching the reaction shot of Amelia because after that we can 100% see that she does not care about the script in that moment. Like in general, she cares about what's going on in his life, but in that moment, 100% she doesn't care about his screenplay. 
she is just completely hearing rejection and it's written all over her face. Um, and she's not doing a lot, but it's so subtle and the context is there to, to provide the emotional element, but she is doing something. And I think for me, it's, she's not doing too much. She's doing just enough to, so that you feel like she's not trying to let on to him what she's actually feeling, but we know yeah, because we, we felt the moment and we felt it slip away. Um, and all she has to do is play it honestly and as, as completely honest as you, as a human would in that moment. And we'll get it. Um, it we're really emotionally intelligent creatures, uh, and in the right circumstances. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> uh, I love that shot of just watching her kind of slightly internally fall apart and fall to pieces. Mm-hmm. And, and then from there, you know, he lost her. She's, she's gone. He's like, I've got this thing coming up. And it's like, Oh, I, I can't make that Charlie. Um, she's done. And you know, it as soon as she walks away. Yeah. I'll come back to that moment a little bit. Um, yeah. story and writing wise, uh, there's one thing, there's kind of a, an interesting before and after, uh, or, uh, a rule of repeats, uh, that happens in the film, which is whenever that first time LaRoche goes, uh, scouting with his friends to, to grab some flowers and plants from the preserve and they get back to the truck. There's so much fun tension when the ranger pulls up on LaRoche because these are some seedy looking dudes sneaking around uh, this guy's missing half his teeth um, and so the confrontation of the ranger it feels like we're just waiting to see what they do and we're assuming violence like this guy's way too calm for getting busted and so we're just waiting for like a gun to pull out and just waste this guy but instead it's a really fun twist that instead they're just very clever and well studied and it's like well okay i didn't expect that <laughs> um his wits to to get him out of the jam and then at the end of the film, when Charlie gets caught spying on LaRoche and Susan, her reaction is completely different from what LaRoche's was uh, with the Ranger because her reaction is to kill him. <laughs> and it's just a beautiful contrast of who she is and how she thinks of her life and society, right? He's not, LaRoche wasn't worried about going in front of the public and like, this is who I am. He's proud of who he is. And that's okay if it means other people drag him in front of a court. She's really got nothing to worry about. Like the most that's going to happen is her reputation is ruined. Uh, But for her, that is death. And so there's no way, you know, she can possibly be held account. And it makes emotional sense. Like if you step out and say, if this woman would just like chill out, it's probably nothing bad is going to happen. Um, instead she goes the complete opposite direction. It was like, no, we need to murder someone. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then LaRoche, he goes along with it, you know, yeah. like, like she's, she's, it's almost like she's brought him down to her level. Mm. She's given him either she's given him or he's taken on her insecurities, you know, that she's always had that you pointed out earlier. She's these insecurities. She can't write about herself. So she's got to write about somebody else. She's out looking outward for stories. Um, and he becomes that. But then when he gets into bed with her, literally, I guess, you know, it, it just, it bastardizes who he is. And then that, that, you know, manifests in him agreeing to kill Charlie at the end, you know, because yeah, he, he, He's like, what? No. When she says we got to kill him, he's like, what? What are you talking about? No. And then really quickly, he just flips. You know, she makes him flip. Yeah. 
you know? So she has this power over him now that she didn't at the beginning. Nobody had power over him. To your point at the beginning, talking, talking to the the ranger there, he's like unafraid at all, unconcerned at all. By the way, here's all the information as to why you need to step off, bro, (laughs) you know? And it's brilliant. It's so, such a good way to establish his, I mean, let's call it dominance, right? Where he just does what he wants and he gets away with it because he's smart and, and knows what he needs to know, you know? hundred percent. The there's a lot of threads in this film and that that basically means there's a lot of subplots Um, and subplots and settings are different because so a lot of the subplots, you know, we have Charlie adapting the novel, Donald writing his thriller, LaRoche, you know, his legal issues, Susan and LaRoche getting together, Charlie and Amelia, Charlie and dating in general, uh, not going well. And the difference, though, because right, there's also the some settings that happen that feel like they could be a, a subplot even though they're not like the we're constantly visiting the the set of being john malkovich and that's not a plot in this movie it's just a setting to let other plots develop and obviously that's fine but the difference though would be a plot has stakes um there's a consequence of failing or succeeding right donald writing his thriller does have consequences and for charlie neither one are really great um if if donald writes it and it's great you know, it, it kills Charlie's self-confidence um, and it makes him feel like crap. But also he cares about his brother. So his brother writing it and failing doesn't make him feel better. <laughs> like yeah. uh, it's, it's kind of a lose-lose proposition, but there are very consequences. They just have different results. Like what those look like uh, will, will greatly differ. Um, and that's just a fun thing to think about. Like whenever you're working on a project and you want to know, you know, is my plot really going anywhere? Does it mean anything? Well, what happens if someone fails or succeeds? That'll give you an idea of if there are stakes and therefore if there's really any plot uh, that, that you're wrestling with in the first place. Um, it can't just be a sequence of events. Uh, they need to also have, you know, some stakes and some some groundedness that makes it worth rooting for or rooting against, etc. And so the other, this is the kind of the final element here is twins. Like, I'm pretty sure Charlie Kaufman does not have a twin brother named yeah. Donald. I feel good about that. <laughs> yeah. I don't know that much about Charlie Kaufman, but he I feel good not. about that. And what's so good about it is it's a great contrast between these two characters. And it really helps them feel like individual characters. And that's one element or else you just have Nick Cage kind of talking to himself. And instead, if it does not take but a minute or two to feel like these are really actual people that you're watching on screen. And part of it is certainly, you know, the contrast and, and how wildly different their characters are. But the other, another part of it, of course, is the timing. They do a great job of, of making sure their timing works flawlessly. And so there's interruptions without cutting away and making it feel like, Oh, we're just stitching this together and in, in post instead all the, the timing is choreographed very, very tightly. Um, and I'd be curious to see how they did that. Uh, if it was just Nicolas Cage rehearsing a thousand times or if they had someone else in the room. But if you have someone else in the room doing that, you have to be very, very careful on capturing audio because if you trample each other's lines, that's a burn take. Uh, you may not be able to use that or, or salvage it. And so it's very delicate. I assume it's very much Nicolas Cage working out the timing running it in his head while also performing to the full extent each character uh individually that's 
brutal. Or maybe there is someone else in the room and they're just doing a great job of, I'm never going to trample. And then in post, whenever we cut these two together, we'll make sure they trample so that it feels much more organic and lived in. Uh, I'm just thinking about that first moment when we're meeting his brother and he's sitting in the bed and then the guy comes into the bedroom on his hands and knees. It's so weird. It's like, what are you doing? <laughs> and Charlie is trying to talk. Uh, and then we're watching Charlie on his bed and then we're listening and he keeps getting interrupted. He keeps trying to wait. Okay. Sorry. Oh uh, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> you know, it just, it, it's all these little false starts. It's beautiful. Uh, just uh, the, how tight it's all kind of coming together. The other interesting thing, you know, on a more cerebral level is whether or not Donald is the alter ego of real Charlie. Like Charlie Kaufman does not look anything like his character in this film. Um, I, I don't, he's like this curly headed dude with all his hair. Um, he looks kind of spry and wiry to me. Um, I don't know. I didn't really, you know, go through a photo album or anything, but just looking at a couple of shots, I was like, eh, he looks like a pretty average Joe, not as scary looking as this version of Charlie Kaufman. So what, what does it do to dress him up like this? What does it do to give him a twin? And I feel like it's a really fun way of Charlie Kaufman kind of saying what he wishes he were like this less intelligent guy, this more confident guy, this guy who's less trapped inside himself. Cause he probably feels much more like that Charlie Kaufman um, than whatever he is in reality. And then let's like generate this. What do I wish I were? Like, okay, we'll let this guy live and breathe. But I think the other aspect of it is this is the embodiment of his inner conflict of being commercial versus creating and writing something artistically satisfying. Um, because ultimately his twin with all the commercial prospects is killed in the conflict, right? Um, and I think that's kind of his way of saying that's that's not what I do. This, this isn't who I am. Um, and therefore I'm, I'm erasing this guy from existence and learning to be that in my own way. Yeah. He also, as I was mentioning earlier, he ends up doing all the things he hates, right? Mm -hmm. But he makes them work because it's ultimately not about the concept or the technique. It's about the execution. Like the ideas can be sound terrible, but if you execute it, you know, in the right way, any idea can be great and any good idea can be really bad. Uh, it's, it's always about the execution. So like voiceover, uh, I love that he calls it out in the film that, you know, it, that's a hacks tool or whatever he says, like, for God's sake, do not use voiceover. Um, and it interrupts doing him. Voiceover. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's so smart, but he does it so well here because there's a lot of ways to use voiceover and some of them are really bad, but some of them are really good. So let's backtrack to towards the beginning of the film, whenever he's going in for when he should go in for the kiss with Amelia, they're sitting in the driveway and she gets out, she goes into her house. And what does he say? I should, up, I should get up there and kiss her. It'll be something we can tell her kids about someday. I'm going to do that right now. And he drives away. Now that's a really great use of voiceover, right? Because voiceover in film works really well when it's adding something new and it's not simply repeating what we're seeing. And so creating some kind of contrast is really great to invite the audience into the experience as opposed to just explain to them what they're already seeing. Like, there's a time for that. I'm not trying to be dogmatic here, but it's so much more interesting and fun when you're doing something that conflicts so that you're inviting the audience to engage with the film 
not simply be so passive because that moment makes you either laugh or makes you a little sad, maybe both. It, it, you kind of laugh at first and you're like, oh, that's really sad that he's not going to go after this thing that he wants. That wants him back, by the way. <laughs> like, yeah, wow. You're walking away from something that you want that also wants you. That's the worst kind of failure that anyone could ever yeah. put upon themselves. I did not laugh. I did not laugh. It was heartbreaking. <laughs> it was heartbreaking. Yes. The other thing, and this is very sly, um, that he does, that he is uh, kind of avoiding. But Robert McKee, they're at the bar. All right. And he's like, whatever you do, do not use an effing deus ox machina. <laughs> right. And then, of course, at the very end of the film, the gator comes out of nowhere at the most opportune time and kills LaRoche right before LaRoche kills Charlie. Yes. Like that is a, to a T a deus ex machina. And what happens though, again, it's about the execution because it doesn't feel cheap. The reason it doesn't feel cheap is because throughout the film, we're seeing gators nearby. Like the very first time we're in the swamp, every time we go into the swamp, we're seeing gators and, um, and they're nearby us in the swamp. And so it's, keeping them around in order to make it feel less like a deus ex machina in the end. And it's just a really clever way to, again, use a trope that doesn't feel cheap, but that most writers make feel cheap because they don't, they don't really execute it, you know, in a way that feels honest and to some degree or another earned or logical. Um, instead. We, yeah. We see them enough for it to feel like a loaded gun. Yes. And it's got to go off. It's got to right? go off. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. That's the perfect way to say it. Uh, in that case, I'll move on. And so, that's <laughs> great. Upend you. I love Not this. It's great. Uh, the other thing that he does that he's kind of kicking against at the beginning of the film uh, is character growth. Right. He's he's very hesitant uh, to talk about how a character grows and changes and becomes something different. Uh, Charlie, throughout the film, is struggling to adapt himself right? To change in any way in order to get what he wants, to get the girl, to complete the screenplay, or even to meet the author. Like there's so many things that he, he's trying to get himself to do that he just can't do. But ultimately by the end of the film, he does, he does them all. And it's because of the moment that he also doesn't want like a, a clarifying moment of, of, you know, uh, realization. And he gets that from himself from his twin brother, right? Uh, who tells him, he's telling that story about like, you're oblivious to the way people look at you and treat you. He's like, I'm not oblivious. And he's like, yeah, you are. And he tells him that story about the girl in the library that was being nice and then made fun of him as soon as he turned around. He's like, I knew about that. Why were you so happy? That was my love. You are what you love, not what loves you. Boom, realization. And suddenly his whole life is different. Everything changes after that, right? Charlie finally kisses Amelia, but she's with someone else. And he tells her that he loves her because you are what you love. But guess what? She loves you too. Oh, well, how cool is this? This guy grew. And despite the, the, the resistance, the reluctance to write something about someone who grows and learns about life. And here he is, he's executing it, but in a way that feels earned and honest because all the trials and tribulations felt earned and honest to his character the things that he was struggling with felt endemic to being Charlie Kaufman, the, a writer locked up inside his head um, who can't, you know, exercise any uh, sense of confidence. Uh, and by the end, he has a reason to feel confident again. Um, and it was given to him by his brother. Um, yeah. 
So I don't know. I like that. I like all that. Um, the, the ending of course is him pondering like the use of his voiceover. He's in the car and he's debating like, uh, Robert McKee wouldn't be like that, but how else can I show his thoughts? And then of course we see him drive off while literally watching flowers grow and bloom, which is Mm -hmm. a visual representation of Charlie himself blooming and growing um and responding to life and the cycles of life yeah uh, it's it's a wonderful little film todd i don't care what you say man <laughs> <laughs> i it's it's brilliant i mean this is a real book yeah susan orlean is a real person susan orlean is a real person who wrote a real book that is called the orchid thief about a real guy named john laroche that <laughs> charlie kaufman wrote a screenplay about i mean this is how freaking cool is that that and and she's actually in it susan orlean makes a cameo in it she's i think the waitress in the film yeah there's like a scene where they're in the diner and she plays the waitress uh in the diner oh with like in in the same scene with judy greer yes oh that's cool so it's it's life imitating art imitating life i mean to like a t and I just love, I had an interesting feeling that kind of made me this week that kind of made me or last week that kind of made me think about this, this movie in life, right? Which is why I said life imitating art. We had at my, at my work, my, my boss, uh, the director of my department left. Her last day was Friday. She didn't love you anymore. Yeah. She, she hated <laughs> she, it, so she dumped me <laughs> and I, I went through like I, I, she's the best boss I've ever had. She's awesome. I just adore her. And she, and I went through like a grieving period and I, I was like really mad for a while. And, and I knew that I know the process that you go through, you know, like where you have, I I mean, you're going through it with your, with your grandmother where you have, you go through all of these steps, all of these stages. Right. And I effing hate it. I hate it. I hate that the world can dictate what I'm going to feel for a while. And then the next stage that I'm going to feel, and and then I'm going to feel this and I hate it. And I was fighting it. Like that's just a tiny example. Right. Yeah, yeah. Right. And then they, the, my company laid off some people that I, I was very angry, very angry. And basically it was like, they were telling me, you know, take some time to get over it. Like F you, I'm not going to get over it. You are not going to tell me to get over it, you know? And of course what happens eventually you get over it or you just move, you move to the next stage or you do move to the next stage. And there's a, there's like a, a frustration with, I think in this film that Charlie has of either Hollywood or just, human beings in general like to see growth of a character like to see oh they're ha- they're they have an issue with this that they have they bump up against and they're doing well but then this happens and and he so he's it's him fighting that but then it's his human nature actually like coming in and saying you know what okay that's that is going to happen and then that is going to happen and that is going to happen and obviously he puts twists on it and it's his own thing, but it, it, this kind of movie makes me think of if you, you don't have to go in to any kind of creative endeavor, trying to reinvent the wheel. You just need to go in with honesty. Yeah. If you are real and you're honest about what it is that you, and you know what it is that you want to say 
and communicate, then it's the whole Philip Glass thing where your taste kind of has to balance out with what you can execute. You just yeah. have to execute to the best of your taste, the ability to your taste, and then do it as best you can. And maybe that will turn into something like adaptation. Maybe it will turn into something like the matrix. Maybe it will turn into something. But if you go in with the idea of I'm going to make something brand new and nobody's ever seen this before, you might not. And is that okay with you? You know, okay. Maybe it turns out to be okay with you. (laughs) Like it is for Charlie here, you know? Absolutely. And it's such a great job of, actually ending up doing the thing that he's trying to do create a new you know a fairly new film um play he played with style and structure and he did it in a way that was honest to himself but still met some of the audience expectations of what makes for a satisfying story and a thriller like it's it's really smart because you can also feel him throughout the film just wrestling with those expectations themselves like this whole film is just about wrestling with the format of storytelling in in movies and the frustration that comes with someone like a robert mckee or a sid field who gives you a manual on how to do it um robert mckee's a real person he's written actual you know how to write a screenplay things and uh i don't know if i've read any of his work i read in my early 20s like a good chunk of Sid Field, maybe the first, I say a good chunk, like maybe two or three chapters for all I was like, Oh, that's interesting. I'm good. <laughs> like I, uh, <laughs> I, I definitely yeah. wanted to know some of those things, but I also didn't want to be beholden to them either. And I would read other people that I greatly respect. Um, that'll be forever. 10 times the writer that I'll ever be Ted Ali and Terry Rossio who wrote, you know, uh, the first pirates of the Caribbean film, um, Aladdin, the, the cartoon, the original cartoon, uh, national treasure, another Nicholas cage film that is fun. Like that's a really fun movie. It's absolutely absurd. Uh, but really, really fun. Like, but they're so big on plot. Like they are plot centric. Everything is plot, plot, plot. Uh, and I'm like, I mean, that's great, but I really love Wong Kar Wai. Uh, that's very light on plot and, and it's still very meaningful to me. And so it's, I can feel Kaufman just wrestling with all those elements of probably executives telling him, here's what we want out of a movie. And then him going off into his corner, writing whatever the hell he wants. And then what's crazy is in this era, after being John Malkovich, everything he wrote would get bought before anyone read it. It was just an automatic bidding war uh, for the new Kaufman project. And it was like, oh, he's got a million uh, 1.2, uh, 1.5. it's like, you haven't read it. You don't even know the synopsis yet. <laughs> and they're just like, we're ready. Um, and so I'm sure at some point that kind of went away, but, uh, cause he just adaptation, probably not the most marketable film, but the, the cachet of making something like this meant a lot to studios. And I think there's, there's a lot to be said whenever your uh, award season rolls around, to have something to submit to award season and to hobnob with everyone else. Like, yeah, you want to make the new, whatever GI Joe film. Uh, but you also know 
you're probably not going to be lining up for awards. And so having something that says awards, let's, let's get something, you know, on our resume and uh, show up all these other executives. That means a lot, you know, to that crowd of, as well, which it should, you know? Um, and I, and I think for a good reason, it, it propels art forward um, and it keeps all of that alive whenever, whenever it's just more than just how much money did you make instead? It's also like, well, what art did you make that got recognized? Uh, well, if you want that, you know what? You're going to have to deal with artists. <laughs> You're going to have to make mm -hmm. art. Um, and so awards, that's why I think, you know, the uh, award season is really actually important to the world, uh, just to be a little dramatic about it, because where else do those stories get told? Where else do we get a moonlight, you know, uh, getting yeah. wide recognition? You need that. We need those stories to get recognition so that more people uh, imbibe it and and learn about other ways of thinking and get exposed to new ideas. Uh, and so something like adaptation plays into all of that because if without it, then yeah, we're, we're a little bit less as a society, I think. Yeah. I totally, totally agree. There's, you know, you look at any kind of art form and you've got to have the Nirvanas, you've got to have the Beatles, you've got to have the, the, any kind of artist who's done anything new and, and different. You've got to like, the the Kubricks, right? Um, without them, then it's it's like not having sci-fi as a as a form of of film, right? That yeah. science can then use, right? right. Like fit art in, informs life um, in so many ways. You know, I think that you know it inspires. You know, movies like two thousand one will or Star Trek will forever inspire scientists and nerds alike to think about what the future should be like. And that's just one example, you know, like there are plenty of other examples like this that break down these walls of this, you know, act one, two, three of, of a way of writing movies or stories in general, um, that, that it has to be that way. It just doesn't have to be that way. And you honestly, if you execute it right, you don't even need to explain why it doesn't have to be that way. You can just be, you can just do it, you know, like it just, it doesn't have to be the way that everybody expects it to be all the time. Sometimes, yeah, you just want a popcorn movie, turn off your brain because you've had a long day. Sure. And to that, when I first saw the clip of the seminar, I thought, wow, what a total jerk. <laughs> but then I, but then when he got to the end of the speech, I thought, oh, mm. He's also right. You know, I'm I'm just a I'm not a movie. I'm not a filmmaker. I mean, I'm Joe Blow. I, you know, I I'm a dad. I'm a husband. I've got a job, maybe two. And I've broken away to go to a movie theater for two hours. And this is all I got. And I'm, I've given my money that took me, you know, it took me an, uh, an hour to make this money. And I'm giving it I'm giving it to you at a at a box office and you're going to make me sit there for two hours and not give me entertainment you're going to give me just structuralist bs the, okay that's obviously not the character you've made that movie for i understand but there is that character yeah that is someone who wants to go watch a movie and be entertained and and let go of the world and that's why people go watch taylor swift go to a Taylor Swift concert or to a Coldplay concert because they don't want to think about the world and all the other bullshit that they have to do. 
They want to just be in that moment. And if you're not guiding them through, yeah, so there's truth in that too. There's truth all over the place here and none of it is wrong. You know, like that's the cool part about this movie is you could walk away thinking, oh man, so yeah, that three act kind of thing. Yeah, that's that's kind of important. Or no, you know, that three act kind of thing, that's bullshit. I don't want to follow that at all. And you're right. And it's beautiful and awesome. Just go make something. Just go you make know? something. <laughs> so great. So such a great film. Oh, I love that. Dude, awesome. Yeah. What uh what are you gonna recommend this week? Ah, yeah. Okay, so this week I'm gonna recommend a short film uh that I found just randomly on YouTube, going down the sh- short film uh kind of rabbit hole called the neighbor's window and i i believe i told you about it yeah i'm not going to share too much but uh, basically the story is just there's a family in new york who looks out and their window faces another building uh, of a couple and they just kind of watch their life and things happen so yeah it's real it's really well done yeah i watched it this morning and loved it uh it won an oscar for best uh short um live action short film oh yeah oh yeah that's right that's right it did yeah incredible Mm -hmm. um there is one interesting tie to this film which is uh brian cox who plays robert mckee uh is in a hbo show called succession and one of the uh the neighbors in the window is her name is juliana canfield uh she's also in succession she's so good um and i love seeing her in this because she brought so much life to the film i mean she makes the film yeah and she's great in succession like uh it's funny because she plays an assistant to one of the uh the, the kids and they're just insufferable jerks all the time and she has to constantly act like she is unbothered by everything they say um and it's really satisfying to watch her um yeah yeah and so uh yeah sorry you were gonna oh no just saying the acting is Mm. phenomenal it's it's just a a basic story uh but it's really beautiful and it ties into like perspective which i think is super important in today's you know instagram society uh so yeah it's a great great little short film i think i forget how long it is was like like 13 minutes, 20 minutes. I can't remember. Yeah. Something, something like, like 18, 20 minutes, uh, but worth yeah, yeah. it. It settles in pretty quick. Like if you give it two or three minutes, you're right in there. Then um, it's yeah. really, really good. Really fast. Um, I'm going to recommend another Nicholas cage film. It's a recent film. It's called pig. He is amazing. Oh like, my God. Did you see it? Oh yeah, dude. He smokes it. So good. That's one of very few like stoic roles that he's, that he takes on. And he is just fire. He's magnificent. Um, because I, as much as some of his other silly works are, are fun, like Mandy, I'm never watching Mandy again. Like that was uh, weird. And I appreciated the weirdness to some extent, but my God, I'm, I'm good on those kind of films. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I still haven't seen it. I oh, haven't God. got brought myself to see it. It's weird. I mean, I don't know if you yeah. smoke, but have a bowl and watch and you'll enjoy it <laughs> 10 times more. I promise. Um, yeah so pig um and stay tuned for next week we are going to look at one of the movies uh in the in the box that todd chooses um in the next Uh, you know 10 seconds (laughs) okay okay uh just that one i knew it i knew it we're gonna we're gonna take a look at no country for old men i'm gonna see if i can get my acting coach trent moore 
on the horn with us because he's in this movie. And so um, oh, it'll be fun to hear him talk about what he learned on set and what it was like uh, working on this. Um, I've been thinking about trying to pull him in for ages now. And so I will see if I can do that. Yeah. No country for old men. Stay tuned for that. And if you're enjoying the show, don't forget, subscribe, drop us a review. Uh, if there's a movie you want us to cover. And if you want to comment on this episode, you can do that at the slash adaptation. Great. And our quote of the day uh, today is from Charlie Kaufman. There's this inherent screenplay structure that everyone seems to be stuck on this three act thing. It doesn't really interest me. To me, it's kind of like saying, well, when you do a painting, you always need to have sky here, the person here and the ground here. Well, you don't. What I love about that is he's I, I think he's both right and wrong. I think because I feel completely in agreement whenever I'm starting to work on a story. I don't want to think about what am I doing in the first act? What am I doing in the second act? What am I doing in the third act? That's a terrible way to go about writing a story. And you're just going to end up with uh, a big blob of gray mess. It's like painting in, a, in another way. Whereas sometimes you try to make a, a really cool color and you just end up with this brown gunk. You don't want that either. Instead, what's really useful is to whatever structure your story, however you like, the events that take place, the story you're trying to tell, the moments that you want to hit, whatever, you know, floats your boat. And then at the end, after you've written your story, to be able to analyze it and say, okay, my my second act is is flailing a little bit. Why is that boring? And just using it as a much more broad analysis tool. That's fun for me um, and useful just as a way to frame what's happening throughout the film but not as a way to plan what you're going to do in the film. Um, that feels a little too rote and uninspired. And as much as, you know, sometimes you just need to write a thing to get paid. It's also really good to work from a point of creativity. And it's hard to feel creative whenever you're, you're filling in the blanks. Like no one wants to do that. Like, I don't know if Todd, if you want to write too much song to your Casio keyboards, uh, built in tracks, like that's, that's probably not as inspired as like, okay, let me just start fresh and create, create something here from a rift or a lyric and then build out from there. And if whatever the Casio can help at some point, great, but probably not as your very first starting point. Uh, at least that's not how I would want to go about it. Yeah. Unless you're, <laughs> um, unless, well, with that, and remember I sent that clip of, uh, the gorillas, the uh no. their oh, oh well what was their big hit the uh, uh feels good Inc. i'm happy i'm feeling glad oh. i got sunshine there's there's a there's a key or like a, a synthesizer that they use the first preset has this <laughs> that's it that's the song and and uh they were doing an interview and the guy goes yeah listen and he hits the button and that's the song <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's obviously not the song. You need the lyrics, you need right. the, the singing and all that stuff, but the it's just so funny. Yeah. Like, like sometimes, yeah. Sometimes, yeah. It's the exception that proves the rule. The thing is that stands exactly. out because no one does that. Exactly. Yeah. That's why, that's why you say the exception that proves the rule It's because yeah. the exception is the one that stands out, not the one that everyone else is doing. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I know a, what you're, I know what you're saying. Absolutely. I just thought no. that was funny. But that is hilarious. Uh, like, uh, uh, yeah. I wonder how many, yeah, other songs are like, you know, something like a doorbell. Uh, this is a great doorbell. <laughs> Probably. I, I heard one um, one thing about uh, Michael Jackson for Beat It. They were looking for for three weeks for a snare sound. Oh, my God. Three 
weeks for just the snare sound. And then what happened was that someone had put a screwdriver on top of a shelf. And while they were like messing around or something, the screwdriver fell off the shelf and hit a drum case. And Michael stopped. He said, that's it. What happened? What was that? That's the snare sound. And that's what it was. It was a screwdriver that fell on a snare drum case. Oh and that's what you had. Well, from now yeah, on, it, I'm dropping tools everywhere. <laughs> As you should. <laughs> As I should. As you should. Nice. Well, um, now we're going to listen to a new track from Mad Valley. It's called Come Back Down. Really excited about this, buddy. What? Uh, anything you want to say before we hit play? Um, this was one of the first songs that I wrote uh, for the record. Well, that I wrote when I came back to writing music in general. I, I sat down to write a bunch of songs for a, a library, and this one came out um, really quickly, actually. And it was funny because I, I played the piano part, and then I thought, okay, what, are, what does this make me feel like? And then I thought of my friend. It's about one friend of mine who who passed away um, that I grew up with on his street. Uh, we were like best friends, and I would go down to his house all the time and, and everything. And then and I, I thought, okay, I've thought about this guy for a long time, but you know, is that really, do I have anything in me anymore to write Mm. about something like that? Because, you know, when, I don't know, when you get older, I think things change, like your perspective on things change. And, you know, maybe you're not as passionate about emotions sometimes, um, or about not emotions in general, but just certain things. And then this thing just fell out in like 20 minutes, I wrote almost all of it. Uh, I think, Within 30 minutes, the entire thing was done. And it was really cool because wow. I don't even really remember writing it. I, it was one of those things where, oh, there's the song. Okay, done. And it sa- the song sounded completely different when I was writing the lyrics. So now that it came into, turned into what it is, it just feels like it always was. And I don't have a lot of songs like that. And this is the most vis- visual song that I have, I think, on the record for me. And I'm working on a little video for it uh i don't know i'm still working on it okay it's not it's not completely like right but i think at some point i might just say f it and put it out you know because why not but uh yeah yeah that's that's where it's at so nice let's take a listen all right on the corner where you lived We played all afternoon I grew up there So unaware It's boarded up now Every memory locked away I'm not that old Am I this old? Oh, the rain will wash away all 
I don't know suddenly the guitar was there I, I didn't realize whenever it entered um it probably entered really early in the song but i just suddenly realized it as it hits the little solo towards the end i was like oh man yeah there's a guitar right there and it's slaying <laughs> like, it's so good <laughs> um don't know in when that, that second part in. you mean yeah in that second oh, yeah. okay yeah like after the bridge um and the bridge itself Ooh, I mean, I assume that's what you call that one. Um, it, I loved it. It, it gave me these really strong, like late nineties, early two thousands, um, flashbacks. Uh, it just had this really, I don't know the right word for it, but the melody of it, the, the texture of your voice, um, and the way it's layered in all felt very like a memory in that way, I guess. Um, yeah. It's awesome. Wow. What are some of the things you're doing in here? You know, it's it's a it's kind of like a, an homage to my my friend. You know, wishing that he had been able to grow up, obviously, and then um, and get old. And and so it was like I felt like I needed to it to be kind of emotional at the beginning. But there's two parts to everything, and so I thought, well, how do I get? How do I make this important and not just like somber completely? You know, and. I was on a bike. I won't forget it. I was on a bike ride um, one day before I was working on the lyrics, just the music. I was on a bike ride and I thought, oh, what if I pulled like a, do you remember um, the suburbs by the, by Arcade Fire? Oh yeah. 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 
But there's there's a song in the suburbs where they do this whole thing where the song just stops and then it comes back in at like double the speed. And I thought, oh, why don't I just do something like that? And so I did. I just did that. That was that was it. That's I was awesome. like, oh, OK, yeah, this totally works. And you should have heard it the first time I did it. It was still really slow. You know, I didn't realize that, oh, man, I need to like really bump the pace. So when I wrote it, the second part was actually pretty like really slow. So then when I just kept speeding it up as I was working on it, like oh, the second part needs to be faster, that still needs to be faster, still needs to be faster. And it still probably could be faster, but that's just what I settled on. And then the the um, out, out of the entire record, I think I'm I'm mostly proud of those lyrics at the end in that, I guess, third that last part. Mm-hmm. I want to wake you up, you know, future at your bedside, show you what it feels like to get rolled. I, I for some reason that just like fell out and it just felt so right and un in unencumbered by any other feeling outside of what I was feeling in that in that moment. And it defined the whole song, you know, um, uh, and and it just felt really right. And then to repeat that at the end, take care of today, take care of today. Like, I thought at some point, maybe I should say something else. And I remember just I just wrote it out a bunch of times and I recorded it that way. And I said, I'll come back to this. You know, I I, I don't want to repeat this this many times. I'll come back to this. And I just never did because sometimes I'm lazy. But it turned out to be the right call to me yeah. because you know in a, in music when you repeat a line it has to have weight and importance so you have to have a reason for saying something more than once the same thing mm-hmm. more than once and the more i thought about it the more i thought i want to say that a bunch of times because i'm trying to remind myself that not for anybody else but for myself like take care of that you know not everybody gets that today meaning that meaning today take care of it take care of it, take care of it. Cause it's so easy to forget to. Um, so yeah, I think I'm probably most, it's probably one of the songs that I'm most proud of on the record for sure. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. There's a Macbeth quote, right? Uh, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, uh, creeps in this petty pace from day to day, uh, to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out brief candle. Uh, how appropriate yesterday's uh, uh, yeah whatever um, it's okay sorry yeah yeah so yeah my mind completely I know went. where it went uh, <laughs> it's very appropriate absolutely yeah yeah good stuff man that's a great song I'm curious you know to, to I'd love to see the finished video and I think that's gonna be beautiful man I'm excited about it thanks man uh, it's just me and my son and my pulled him to get i woke his butt up at 5 30 in the morning <laughs> we went up to my mountain right next to my house and we just shot this thing man it was and i because i had this idea and i talked to you about it and we wanted to do it and it didn't happen because i wasn't able to go to austin when i wanted to in september because of covid but i just thought you know what i have to make something and yeah. if i i need to be an example that i tell everybody on the on this podcast of just make stuff so it's just me and him. That's literally it. Had awesome. no no other hands in this yeah. at all. Yeah. And if it turns out to be shit, it's all my fault. <laughs> if it turns out to be good, it's all our fault. You know, it's it's like like my son killed it. He he just killed it. Everything I asked him to do, he did, and he just nailed it. And I'm like, man, you're 10? Jeez. 
Um, so yeah, a lot of fun. We'll see how it turns out. But, That's dope. Yeah, yeah, yeah look thanks, for man. links in the show. Um, check out yeah. all of his other songs as well if you've uh, missed those. And we'll we'll have links to all of that in the, in the show notes. Yeah, man. Yeah. Thank you guys so much for joining us uh, and Wes for giving me the platform to listen to my song. Hopefully you guys enjoyed how we pulled apart Adaptation. I loved this film. Loved, I think we both did. So great. Some really good things to follow. Um, join us next week. We're doing No Country for Old Men. Very much looking forward to that. Yeah, Please subscribe, review us. Uh, and if there's anything you'd like to see us uh, cover, let us know. Until next time, I'm Todd. I'm Wes. Go watch some movies. Thank you.